your Bibles to 2 Samuel 12. We're going to be focusing just on verses 24 and 25. I won't necessarily say a great deal about those verses specifically, but that's the focal point for everything I want to say this morning. Solomon's birth in 2 Samuel 12, short passage, it's not complicated, it doesn't raise any difficult questions, it's very straightforward. And yet, I think in this passage, we see something almost too wonderful to put into words. We see in, in Solomon's birth, God's unanticipatable and uncontainable goodness to David. Because as we see just in this chapter, David is in this part of his life entering a nightmare of his own creation. And David is going to suffer, and he deserves to. And, and that's the context within which Solomon is born. Not only that, Matthew helps us connect the dots across the whole arc of the Bible and shows us that it's with Bathsheba and David who gave birth to Solomon who eventually gave birth to Jesus. I'm sure the Almighty had different options out there for getting Messiah born, but he picked David and Bathsheba, this marriage born in the most ugly of circumstances, to to have Jesus born. My thesis this morning is simple. Out of David's nightmare, God brought the Savior of the world. What is he going to bring out of your nightmare and mine? And that is all I want to explore with you this morning. Now, I would love to tell you that I had noticed the connection between Matthew's genealogy and Solomon's birth. I need to give credit where credit is due. If any of you know the name Tim Keller, he's a Presbyterian pastor in New York City. I find him extraordinarily helpful. He pointed it out to me. I felt really stupid that I didn't. It's so obvious once once uh, I saw it. But credit where credit is due it goes to him in a sermon series that he did on on David. Now, again, to fully appreciate Solomon's birth, we need to set Solomon in the, in the context of David's whole life. David has fairly recently in the book been crowned king. Some good things have happened in between 2 Samuel 5, when David is anointed over all Israel, and then when David does what he does in 2 Samuel 11. God has covenanted with David. David's gotten the ark into Jerusalem. Other good things have happened. But in terms of the pace of the narrative, it doesn't take very long for David to be on the throne before he does this. Part of, uh, that's part of the tragedy of Samuel. The deeper tragedy in Samuel is when we remember that David spent most of 1 Samuel doing a superb job trusting God in an impossible situation. If we cast our gaze back a little bit further, just very briefly, we'll remember that Judges ends with the repeated refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The last four chapters of Judges are some of the most intentionally horrifying things you will ever read in Scripture. And the narrator is clearly saying, we need a new kind of leadership. If we had a king, these kinds of things wouldn't be happening. Saul is picked first. And the early chapters in Saul's story make it clear that Saul has all of the natural talent and spiritual empowerment that he needs to succeed as king. In other words, when Saul doesn't succeed, it's not because God made a bad choice or because God didn't help Saul enough. Rather, Saul's fears are bigger to him than God is. If you read Saul's story, when Saul is first publicly announced as king, they do the lot and they go by tribe and then by family. 
they, they look around and Saul is hiding in the baggage. And we know from other verses that Saul is physically tall and, and, and he's an impressive soldier, you know. It's the most incongruous image of this, uh, of, you know, he, I think Saul looked like a rugby player and he's trying to hide among the baggage, but he's not doing a very good job. It's very strange. When Saul ruins his own kingship, he says, I was afraid and I listened to the voice of the people. Afraid? In 1 Samuel 15, at the end of his life in 1 Samuel 28, very strange passage. Glad I'm not preaching on that this morning. He goes to the witch in Endor and they summon up Samuel and Samuel says, you're going to be dead soon. And Saul collapses to the ground from fear and he won't get up. Fear is the keynote in Saul's life and it ruins him spiritually. Saul's fears have more weight with him than God does. Now, friends, this is a different sermon. But when the Lord in the Old Testament says, do not be afraid. And that is, by the way, the most frequent command given in the entire, it occurs hundreds of times. He is not saying, do not ever experience the emotion of fear. What he is saying is, don't let fear influence how you make your decisions. And don't let your fears be bigger than me. Saul can't do that, and it ruins him. David is anointed as successor in 1 Samuel 16. Saul is is actually very impressive. David, on the other hand, no one expects him to succeed. Samuel is even surprised that this is the person that the Lord has chosen. It's a very interesting chapter. When Samuel shows up at Eli's house, you would think that when the equivalent of of J.I. Packer or whoever your spiritual hero is, you would think that when someone like that shows up for dinner, you get the whole family together, right? But if you read the chapter, David is not even there. He's out working in the fields. It's like he's an afterthought. In a culture in which the number seven is the number of perfection and David is the eighth son, it's like David is the runt. Nobody is thinking about David. But Samuel anoints him. And in the next chapter, First Samuel 17, with David and Goliath, David abundantly proves. He has every quality that you need to lead Israel well. His faith and his courage in that chapter are just amazing. And if you read that chapter, look at the things David says. He's talking about God all the time. David factors God into the equation in a way Saul never did. After David and Goliath, it's clear that Israel has a new national hero. It's clear this guy should be king. At this point, there could have been a peaceful transition of power from Saul to David. Saul might have lived out the rest of his life on the throne, and then David would have been king. Saul might have even stepped aside. But Saul, in his paranoia and his jealousy... In his fear, again, is going to create a crisis where there doesn't need to be one. And he spends most of the rest of 1 Samuel persecuting David and trying to kill him. It's really kind of bizarre when you think about it that the spiritually deposed king, who's too frightened to trust God, is chasing the the real king whose only crime is saving the nation from slavery to the Philistines. That's the thanks that David got for what he did in chapter 17. When I read that part of 1 Samuel, it, I wonder, is Saul thinking about what, will, what he will do if he succeeds? Because if David is dead, who's going to go fight the Philistines? When Goliath was challenging them, Saul was back in his tent. He was not willing to go out and fight Goliath. It's very bizarre. And friends, this part of 1 Samuel makes up almost half of the book. 
about 1 Samuel 18 to 31 is David running for his life. That's, that's really strange to me. I think we are already seeing a little prefiguring of the persecution of a greater Davidic king to come, I wonder. Regardless, eventually God keeps his promises to David. Saul dies fighting the Philistines and David is crowned. And as I said, it does not take very long before Uriah has been murdered and Bathsheba has been violated. Some people try to moralize David in 2 Samuel 11. I heard it said once that it wasn't common for women to be bathing on the top of the roof, so Bathsheba kind of stim. If you've ever heard that before, that is not in the text. The text unambiguously puts all the blame for this on David. In Deuteronomy, if there is an adulterous affair, both couples were executed. That's how seriously God takes marriage. And there is not a hint or a word of blame to Bathsheba at all. All the blame is on David. Now, just knowing the bare outlines of the story, we see clearly David is in the wrong. If you read the chapter, the narrator piles outrage upon outrage. First of all, it says in verse 1 that all the other army, it was the time of year when all the kings go out for battle, and all the rest of the army of Israel is out fighting. While David is back in Jerusalem relaxing. And the narrator doesn't say it, but I think, I'm pretty sure we're supposed to think David shouldn't be taking a vacation. He should be out with the rest of his army. When he gets Bathsheba pregnant, he calls Uriah home, gives him some champagne and roses, and says, you've been gone months. Go home. And Uriah won't do it. Uriah is a model of faithfulness. Uriah says, the Ark of the Lord and Joab and all the other soldiers are out there risking their lives, and I'm going to go relax. I, I don't think so. And when Uriah won't play along, David sends Uriah back to battle, carrying his own death warrant. And David assumes that Uriah is so faithful to him that he won't read the message he's given to Joab, his general, to let Uriah die. He assumes that Uriah is such a faithful soldier that he won't look at this message. Uriah dies just because he's such a faithful soldier. And not only that, we read in 2 Samuel 23 that Uriah was one of the 30, one of David's inner elite Bodyguard. This was not a nameless foot soldier that David did this to. It was a close personal friend who had fought side by side beside David. Not only that, when Joab changes the order, David says, charge the city wall, which is stupid. You'd be a a sitting duck if you did that if you were a soldier. Everybody fall back, let Uriah die. Joab changes the order so it will be less suspicious, and he lets a lot of soldiers die. And then the messenger that he's going to send back to David, he says, if the king gets angry, say this. But David isn't angry at all. He says, oh, that's how war goes. That's fine. David is fine for the soldiers fighting for him to die to cover up his sin. He has no problem with that. At the end of the chapter, David marries Bathsheba, and he is quite happy to carry on with his life as if nothing has happened. And God has to send Nathan to hit him over the head with a spiritual two-by-four and wake him up in the chapter that we uh, read this day. Isn't the parable that Nathan tells fairly obvious? What, why isn't David couldn't see that that was about him? Is that already a hint of David's dulled spiritual state? I, I could be reading too much into the text there, but I wonder... David, as, you, as, as we read this morning, responds to the parable by said, saying the man who, who did that deserves to die fourfold. And many people have pointed out that David is pronouncing his own sentence here. David killed Uriah, and David is going to have four sons die. 
He's pronouncing his own judgment. Nathan unambiguously says that David is forgiven and he won't die. And already that is a mercy because according to Deuteronomy, he should have died. But Nathan says that the sword used that David used to kill Uriah will never leave him. The violence that David has initiated is going to cling to his life. And David is going to suffer. And the rest of Second Samuel shows this happening, shows the, the spiraling consequences from sin. You can see that in the rest of Second Samuel. But the baby that's born here, already that's the beginning of the nightmare. I've always struggled a little bit with David's, this baby is not named what David named him, but, but I've always struggled a little bit with that baby dying because that infant did nothing. It was David's fault, but David stays alive and the baby dies. So why did God do that? I wonder if the Lord is saying to David, David, I can't let you enjoy the fruit of your sin. David has been treating people like objects, just taking whoever he wants and killing whoever he doesn't want. And I wonder if the Lord is saying, I cannot let you get away with that. I have to hurt you in this way. I'm going to take that baby to myself and he'll be safe with me forever, even though it's going to break your heart. And to say David is heartbroken over this is an understatement. You remember from what was read, David is in so much pain, he cannot get up. He's weeping and begging God to change his mind, and the servants come to lift him up, and he won't get off the ground. You'll know that even when you're overcome with emotion, it's not that hard to stand up, but David is in so much pain, he can't stand up. And this is the beginning of the nightmare. Now, at this point in the sermon, you may be thinking, uh, Eric, you were saying something about God's goodness at the beginning of the sermon, and we're not hearing much about goodness so far. Well, well, as, as, as sobering as this part of scripture is, actually we see God being good to David in multiple ways. Not only does David not die, as he should have, he gets to stay king. He's not deposed, and that's more than Saul got. Even though, interestingly, in a sense, David's sins are worse than Saul's. I think part of the reason is David's repentance is so much better, but that's a different subject. David gets to stay king. Not only that, God legitimates the marriage between David and Bathsheba by giving them a son named loved by the Lord. That's what Jedidiah means. For the first time in the narrative, Bathsheba is called the wife of David. Every other time she's mentioned, even after she's married to David, she's called the wife of Uriah the Hittite, just so that we know David, that was not David's wife. For the first time, she's called the wife of David. And have a baby named Peace. That's what Solomon means. It's from the same root as Shalom. It's like as the nightmare is beginning, it's like the Lord smiles on David and Bathsheba and says, I'm with you and I am at peace with you. Not only that, the Lord continues to protect David. When Absalom, his son, rebels, Absalom should have won that war. It's only through divine intervention that David manages to come out of that still alive. Not only that, all of the promises to David in the Davidic covenant are not rescinded. They are still there. I say that because in David's psalm in 2 Samuel 22, you still get a vision of all the world coming in worshipful submission before David's father. Those, those are, God doesn't take those away. And in addition to all of this, the baby born to this couple, the marriage for worst circumstances provides the line through which Messiah is born. This is, this is staggering to me. 
in addition to everything else, just not dying, just not being executed is a mercy. Everything else is mercy that God, it's pure gift. And in addition to all of that, God throws in Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do you see here God's unimaginable, uncontainable goodness? Out of David's, this horrific sin, the Lord gives the very best gift that he can. God has a level of goodness to bad people in this chapter that simply outstrips everything we might imagine. I don't suppose I need to tell you much about the kind of nightmares that life can bring or that we can bring on ourselves. I don't want to be gloomy or dour here with you this morning. God's opinion of created human existence before the end of all things in Genesis 1 is good and very good. And yet we live in a dangerous world, and you and I are dangerous. We can do a lot of damage to the people around us. I don't suppose I need to tell you much about how difficult it is to stay married when the relationship seems broken, and it seems to bring you nothing but loneliness and pain. And you look at other couples, and they seem perfectly happy, and you wonder what you're doing wrong. Alternately, it is not easy to stay single and celibate as the years go by. And to stay happy and cheerful and engage with life, that is not easy. It is not easy when you have a son or a daughter and the relationship is like barbed wire. It always seems to go wrong. And you don't, you want so badly and you don't know how to tell that son or daughter how much you love them. And you don't know how. It's not easy when you have to deal with chronic pain that will never get better until you die. Maybe it's some sin that you have repented of decades ago and that you've been forgiven of, but the consequences linger. Maybe you hurt as a child when you were most vulnerable and you put on quite a brave face to the world, but on the inside, it is a different story. We could go on and on. It would be easy to multiply examples of the kind of nightmares we go through. Eliphaz in the book of Job says, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly Upward. And friends, am I the only one? I've never been unfaithful to my wife, and by God's grace, I never will. But am I the only one who has had those three-in-the-morning worries, wondering if I'm just going to ruin it all through my own stupidity? Am I the only one? Because if, if, if I read what David does, and if I think, oh, I'm beyond that, I would never do anything like that. I'm, I'm kidding myself. I'm lying to myself if I say that. But friends, out of David's nightmare, God brought the Savior of the world. What's he going to bring out of yours? And friends, this was all entirely David's fault. He had no one to blame but himself. Now friends, if anything I am saying this morning is making you worry that God winks at sin or doesn't take it seriously, read the rest of Second Samuel. David is going to be broken in the most pathetic manner by the end of this book. And pathetic is the last word I would use for David in 1 Samuel. You remember when Absalom dies, David, in the claustrophobia of his grief, has to run up to the city wall so he can say, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I had died and not you. And all the other soldiers who are burying their dead and tending their wounds, who have been fighting on David's behalf, are sitting there wondering, why, why is our king saying that? Is the king wishing that we were dead or captured just so he could have this 
rebel back? In 1 Samuel 18 and 19, David is out of touch with what his son has done. Earlier, before the battle, he says, deal gently with the lad for my sake. It's na'ar in Hebrew. It's the word for like a 10-year-old boy. Absalom is not a lad. He's not a youth. It's like David can't face what Absalom is doing. He's out of touch with reality. He's kind of pathetic. At no point in 2 Samuel was David thinking, yes, this is bad, but at least I got Bathsheba out of it. He was not thinking that. And friends, God, God is able to make us wretchedly sick of the ways we violate his laws and hurt the people around us. But friends, if God brought the Savior of the world out of David's nightmare, there is no limit to the kindness and the goodness that he can show you in yours. We need to use our imaginations to appreciate this. It says in Psalm 126 that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. What acts of kindness and goodness from the Lord would it take for you to feel like you were dreaming? Friends, if this is true this morning, then you and I are safe. We are deeply safe in a world that we cannot control, no matter what goes wrong. Friends, we, we, we will never see this in our own lives. David did not see it in his own life. It's only until we pull back through a very wide-angle lens and see the, the whole arc of both Testaments that we can see what the Lord was up to. We will never see this. But friends, imagine, what was it like for David when he woke up in eternity and saw Jesus for the first time? He saw that greater king that his own line was aiming at, that he was only an imperfect reflection of, that true Son of God who brings the whole world in submission and worship to the Father. What was that like when he saw him for the first time? And what will it be like when you see him for the first time? And friends, in case any of you are, are, are thinking, well, David's special, we don't have time this morning, but this is habitual for God in the Old Testament to do this. He does it over and over again. You are heir to no less great promises. Friends, may, may, may the Lord deliver us from our narrow, gloomy, bitter thoughts of him. And may the Lord give us an Old Testament-sized imagination so that each one of us can endure with joy to the very end. Amen. We are going to sing our final hymn. It is appropriate.